Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter and our guest today is Melissa Ashley, who is the author of The Bee and the Orange Tree. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Hi. Melissa, this new book takes us into Parisian literary salons in 1699. How did we get there? <laughs> what, what, was, what was your inspiration? Uh, my new book, The Bee and the Orange Tree, uh, is, tells the forgotten story of a 17th century French fairy tale writer called Marie-Catherine Dolnoy. And she published the very first fairy tale in 1690. And it was actually enclosed in the pages of her first novel. And she also coined the term fairy tale, conte de fay. And many years ago, I was trying to write a contemporary fairy tale as a novel, and I just got really stuck. And so I did some research into fairy tales, and I discovered that in France, um, between the years 1690 and 1725, there was this golden age of writing and publishing fairy tales. And the vast majority were written by women. And I'd never, ever heard of them. And so this just piqued my imagination. And, um, and, th- and that's how I discovered her. And she stayed with me. I discovered her before Elizabeth Gould, who was the heroine for my first book, The, Bee, uh, the Birdman's, Birdman's Wife. wife. <laughs> um, tell, me, tell us about this wonderful Baroness. Um, what, she, she, she almost comes out of your novel as a kind of feminist of her time. I think she was quite feminist. It was a really, uh, it was a fascinating time in French history. It's the time of Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King. And in Louis's early reign, there was all this innovation in literature, in theatre, in art, and it was called kind of the modern. And then later, in Louis's later years, he became very pious and very religious, and the society became increasingly repressive. And it was at this period in the in the late 17th century, the last decade, that fairy tales crystallised as a genre, and. Murray Catherine and her colleagues, the Contuses, who were fairy tale writers, they ran literary salons in their bedchambers where they performed fairy tales and, and their guests did all sorts of um, writing exercises and tricks and games. They all competed with one another. This was the latest thing uh, and it eventually became published as fairy tales. But um, it was in this environment that they were discovered. It's a kind of a... It's a kind of a safe space behind closed doors, isn't it? Because these women weren't, they didn't have much autonomy. They couldn't, they couldn't travel. They couldn't travel unaccompanied. It was, it was, like you said, it's truly oppressive, isn't it? It was. It was um, incredible that they did this. So in this time, women were considered to be minors up until the age of 25. They, um, more often than not, they were married when they were as young as 15 and often to men who were several decades older than themselves. And then their husbands had charge of their money and they couldn't work and there was no such thing as divorce. So you were sort of um, stuck with the person that your parents selected for you to marry. And it was okay if he was a kind person or you had a good relationship with him, but if he was a gambler or some sort of scallywag, then there was going to be all this trouble. And that's actually what happened with Marie Catherine Dolnoy. She was married when she was 15 and her husband was 30 years older than her. And by the time she turned 19, she'd had four children. And uh, two of them actually died, but two survived. And so later on, when she wrote fairy tales, she was her motivation to write them really was to write against arranged marriage, which she saw as a terrible injustice in women's lives. And so that's, I think, a bit of an impetus. Yeah, because uh, a lot of those fairy tales are quite... They're not like morality stories, but there's a, definitely a, a thread of... Um, 
what am I trying to say? A thread of like there's definitely an idea that they try and push across in terms of like social um, behavior and yeah. So, so with fairy tales, people believe that it, it's it's just lots of people think that fairy tales were sort of invented in the 19th century with the Grimm brothers and Hans Christian Andersen, and there was always that idea that they were for children, and that they did they had a morality tale embedded in them. But when I um, went to learn about the fairy tales written in the 17th century. Uh, they weren't written for children. They were written to entertain adults and perhaps the target audience also was these 15-year-old girls, you know. And they sometimes they had a bit of a morality tale, but they also basically had heroines who were really early feminists and they wanted to... They, they used their ingenuity and their intelligence and their creativity to sort of um, change the circumstances of their lives to make their life... Uh, more pleasurable and meaningful perhaps in a literary sense when they, there were very material circumstances in their lives that they couldn't change. So they were sort of using literature to survive or using fairy tales to survive. In this novel, um, uh, the Baroness Mary Catherine is at the centre of an orbit of a huge cast of characters and you, you write from multiple sort of perspectives in this novel as well. Um, who are some of the most sort of fun people you've played with in crafting this book? Yeah, so uh, it's told from three points of view. The first character that we meet is a woman called um, Madame Nicola TK, and she's a very dear friend of Mary Catherine's. And the story begins, she's visiting a fortune teller and she has this very strange prediction that sends her into a little bit of, pa of a panic. And then she goes, Mary Catherine is running her literary salon. It's the last Tuesday of the month. And um, Nicola TK turns up at the salon to sort of tell her friend that she's had this very weird prediction. So we meet Mary Catherine and then we also meet Car Mary Catherine's daughter, whose name is Angelina, and she's 19 and she's been brought up in a convent and she's just been thrust into uh, the Paris literati, really, and she's feeling really out of place there. And so that's where the novel starts, at the literary salon. Um, it's been some time since The Birdman's Wife, and that, that I understand it's a huge project for you. Um, you it was part of a PhD that novel, mm -hmm. um, it involved an enormous amount of research and taxidermy as well. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yes, it is true. So I, uh, and it happened with the book I've just written as well. So I love doing my, I mean, um, I've spent lots of time studying and I love researching. I'm really, really passionate about it and I could spend my days researching and, and sort of trying to avoid writing in a way. And so when I was researching Elizabeth Gould, who was the... Um, feature for The Birdman's Wife, a 19th century bird illustrator, when I was looking into her life, I was trying to get some spark into the story when I started writing it. And I thought Elizabeth had to paint birds from taxidermied specimens prepared by her husband. So I thought, I'll go down to the Queensland Museum and have a look behind the scenes uh, where, they, where they prepare the taxidermy. And I went down and did that. And then I was telling the people who are all volunteers about my story and then one of them basically challenged me and said why don't you come back next week and we'll teach you how to prepare a wing and I thought oh well I What's mean I'd never why ever <laughs> I'd never considered doing it but I thought oh yeah well why not you know that's a challenge and I ended up spending a year with them coming in like on Wednesdays when they did the taxidermy and but I was really bad at it like it, it right. helps if you have um, finger skills like if you can sew or something like that but I did like a black-shouldered kite and, and an owl and a very fat kookaburra mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought I'd done enough and I stopped. 
So what was the um, research process for this novel? Did you just go swimming in the research and then a story came out? Because this, this is a much faster turnaround. It is, yes. Um, yeah. So did you know what you were looking for straight away or did you just go swimming in the research and then the novel kind of emerged at you? I like that, swimming in the research. That sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had the idea to work with her for a long time. I, I discovered her before I discovered Elizabeth Gould and I there was this scandal in her early life when she was a young woman and she was banished from Paris and I was like, oh, she's really interesting. And I was just so captured by the fact that me, who loves fairy tales, had never heard of these women and I thought, you know, this, this story has appeal to readers. I want to write about her. So I just wanted to write about her for a long time. And then a bit later, after I'd written The, the Birdman's Wife, I discovered another piece of information in her biography and I just thought, I have to write about this person and these other women, her friends, her colleagues who also wrote fairy tales, basically before someone else beats me to it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's always the way. <laughs> and The Birdman's Wife was such a, like a well-received book. It's much beloved. How does it feel coming back to fiction writing with your second novel? Oh, it's really lovely to have a beautiful book that's coming out and I thank, you know, Affirm Press and you guys for supporting it. Um, look, I was really lucky. I had that background research that I'd done and I had a lovely experience with the publication of The Birdman's Wife and I received an Australia Council grant for three months to go to Paris to do the research for this book. So lucky this you. really helped me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I lived in the Marais and at... Um, an artist community. There were 350 writers, musicians, um, painters and so forth at the same time. And so I could immerse myself in Paris because I hadn't spent a lot of time in Paris before. I'd been there and that really gave me the confidence to sort of do the setting because there's so many 17th century uh, buildings in Paris and they've been perfectly preserved inside as well so you can go in and you can feel all the beautiful object or not feel them look at them feel them with your <laughs> eyes look at the beautiful objects from the past and that really helped my imagination to come up with the setting and then obviously wandering around the streets and going in the cafes so and gorgeous. everything and mm. yeah um can you talk a little bit to uh the idea of the fairy tale um what what it meant for readers when it emerged and how it's changed so much now in our post Disney world. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just so fascinating. So as I said, Mary Catherine published the very first fairy tale in 1690. And it was sort of by chance, I guess, she just popped it into a book she was writing and it was part of a scene. Uh, and then about five years later, there was this vogue and they called it a vogue for fairy tales between 16. 97 and 1698 and there are other fairy tales also Charles Perrault who's kind of known today for writing The Glass Slipper and Puss in Boots he was one of them and they started publishing collections of fairy tales and this was the first time this had ever happened and there was this uh, magazine called Le Mercure uh, Galant which was a literary magazine a fashionable literary magazine and they were they were saying oh this is the latest vogue you know everyone's got to read these fairy tales so that's, they were really, really popular at the, at the time. Um, and what about the idea of Prince Charming? Um, we look at Prince Charming now as a really kind of uh, uh, a antiquated idea that conf confirms gender roles. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a bit of a, a cringe factor with Prince Charming. But at the time, it seems like a kind of a, a radical emergence. This is a time when people didn't marry for love. Mm. And so... Prince Charming, it seems, was uh, a wholly new idea. 
I think so. I think their idea of Prince Charming can be a little bit radical. And I think also um, with our fairy tales coming out of this idea, they came out of the Grimm's and they were really popular and they were publishing Phenomenon. And so the Grimm's were looking for a certain sort of fairy tale that appealed to children and that, that had a fairly straightforward, linear story. And, and so then we have these conventional Prince Charmings and princesses and so forth. But the fairy tale princes and princesses in Marie Catherine's stories actually often reversed gender roles and that was so interesting that they were doing that 300 years ago. So Marie Catherine had heroines that were really smart and intelligent and problem solving and then often her male characters were passive or ineffectual and what was appealing about Prince Charming was she actually had a Prince Charming character in a fairy tale called the Bluebird and he spends all this time listening to the heroine who's trapped in a tower and developing a relationship with her. And it's actually all about conversation and all about nurturing the courtship. And so mm. the arts of conversation were really important to the culture at the time. And so it was sort of about, about that, about that relationship. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I think that can really potentially appeal to modern readers. I and mean, we still look for that. We haven't totally given up on Prince Charming. I know Absolutely. there's a blossoming romance readership. Not even blossoming, yes, it's, it's been there. blossoming for years. Yeah. And it's also one of those genres that's kind of derided a little bit by mm. mainstream readership mm. which is just bizarre to me because it's so large and so out there so is there much of a correlation there do you think or is it more I think that fairy tales keep getting reinvented and and perhaps fairy tales today are um, popular in manga or in graphic novels or some tv series or movies and Definitely then but cinema. yeah and and I just think it's really interesting that from the beginning, they were these subversive texts, and they were the original fairy tales were not really linear. They were um, they had plots and they had conversation. They were a little bit longer, and they came out of our Greek myths and came out of fables and medieval texts, and also novels. But were um, really popular in the 17th century, and there are a couple of French novelists who um, Madame de Scudery and Madame Lafayette who contributed to the novel, but they've been forgotten from history as well, like the fairy tale writers. But all of those forms went into these 17th century fairy tales, which were kind of intertextual, so they're quite interesting. And perhaps they didn't take off or didn't become popular in the 19th century because they were for adults and they were more complex texts. Two novels in. Um, tell us what it's like working with small publisher of firm press um, what's what's taking you by surprise, and what's been yeah what what's been different to what your expectations were when you first started the publishing process? Oh, I think um, for a long time, I just wanted to publish a book. That was my goal, and that was my dream, and and it felt I'd, I plugged away at for I plugged away at it for so long mm. that it felt like it might never happen. And so when it you know finally did happen. It was just amazing, but I, I like I imagine would be the experience with many many authors. You just have no idea what it's like to go on the other side of the door and publish a book and and what that experience is like. So I was really lucky because my first book was very well received and um, my publishers produced a beautiful hardcover book and as they have with this one as well and they they've have, yeah. looked after <laughs> me gorgeous. and yeah so it's just been a really incredible experience for me but it's a whole other world out there the you know, being on the other side of it um, to being in your room doing the writing and everything. So that's another, you sort of have another skill set that you employ for that. Do you have any advice you'd give to aspiring historical fiction authors? Um, it's, a, it's a huge journey to go down and um, a lot of research. Um, 
yeah, do you have, would there be anything that you sort of, if you could go back to yourself now? <laughs> oh, I can think of about, you know, 10 things to say. I think um, it's such an exciting time for historical fiction at the moment in mm. Australia there, and probably in the world. I think there's a real thirst for stories like Murray Catherine's. I think that historical fiction writing has become very democratic in the sense that we have incredible digital resources and sources available to us and we don't need to leave our rooms, they're there. We can go into an archive of the New York Library, you know, and, and we can get some really important information to build our stories. But my advice would be do that and take advantage of that. And that means more people can write historical fiction than before because maybe in the past you needed to be associated with... Uh, an institution to do yeah, it. academia. Yeah. Um, so that's really wonderful. But my other big piece of advice would be to go into the field, like to go to the place where you want to write and to sort of, you know, touch the objects or whatever and, and, and have that material experience with the archive and with the evidence and talk to people. Uh, and I think that that kind of is, re in my experience, that's that's even more important sometimes in the book learning. Obviously, you have to go into the archives and, and physically read the books and everything, but some sort of material connection with your subject is so important and, and getting into the place you want to write about as soon as possible in the writing process, I think, is important too. But it's just I just think it's such an exciting time for historical fiction writing. I think there's a, a thirst for people's forgotten stories out there. So I think that's really wonderful and really exciting for people who might want to do it and, yeah... Melissa, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's been a real pleasure to Thanks to for having me. Thank you. And for everyone listening at home, you can order your copy of The Bee and the Orange Tree from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.